We continue this Lord's Day in our study on the subject of put not your trust in princes, all of which, if you recall, was prompted by the things that happened in the Supreme Court in the Roe versus Wade overthrow decision and some thoughts about whether our rulers and our institutions can save us, after all, from all of our troubles. Now, last Lord's Day, we mentioned how God's Word warns us not to put our trust in princes. King Saul, for example, started out well. He was humble, prudent, did not seek revenge against his political opposition and was brave in the face of danger for his people. And yet King Saul soon began to wobble when he disobeyed God's commandment with regard to the sacrifice. You remember that Saul and his son Jonathan provoked Israel's mortal enemy, the Philistines, stirring them to great anger. Israel grew afraid and began to desert their king. By hiding and fleeing across the Jordan, God had wrought great victory before for them, but they no longer trusted their king to protect them, nor God's mighty power to save them. Israel had demanded a king to lead them into battle, but now that they had one, when the battle approached, they fled in terror. Saul thought that he must do something to shore up his support by the people so that he would have enough troops left to withstand a huge impending onslaught from the enemy. He was waiting for Samuel to appear to offer sacrifices to God, but Samuel being late, as Saul put it later, he forced himself to make the offerings himself against God's commandment. Of course, Saul could have prayed for divine deliverance. Nothing was stopping him from doing that, and he would have broken no commandment. But that would not satisfy his desire nor the desire of the people for a open religious ritual of sacrifice. Saul needed to exploit that ritual to calm his troops down so that they would not flee from him. But Samuel rebuked Saul for his foolishness and disobedience against God and told him that he had failed the test. And so God would appoint another man to be king over Israel. Saul's test was this, whether he would obey God in the face of rejection and abandonment and a loss of confidence in Him by His people. But then how many of us can say that we would have done better than Saul? But this gives us an insight into the cause of the failure of our leaders and institutions. You see, they perceive that if they do what is good and proper and right, they will lose their influence and power We will lose our support by the people, they say. All of our donations will dry up if we do what is right against the will of the people. All our voters will desert us and stay home on election day. So we can see how the people's fear and loss of trust in their powerful God in this case led their king Saul into sin. There is a sympathetic resonance between the sin of the people and the failure of the institutions that the people have set up. Rather than the institutions or the king upholding right and truth and justice, they tend to react and respond to the people's wicked hearts until both the king, the institutions, and the people are destroyed. But how completely different is our good king Jesus? 
Jesus never did cater to his audience. Jesus never did worry about losing the crowds that followed him. Jesus never did try to say only the smooth things that his audience wanted to hear. It started early in his ministry at his hometown of Nazareth in Luke 4. The people desired for him to perform miracles. They were not satisfied, it seems, with Christ's teaching that he is the long-promised Messiah come to rescue God's people in prudence and justice and truth. Jesus knew what their response would be, for he knows all things. He knew they would rise up in wrath and try to destroy him immediately. And yet Jesus obeyed the will of his Father and proclaimed the hard truth to his rebellious audience. Christ did it again in his teaching about sovereign election and the centrality of His very physical body and blood as the only source of life eternal to those who come to Him in faith. Jesus refused to back down. After the people were repulsed by His teaching, Jesus refused to back down His startling teaching. Instead, He proclaimed the doctrine of election that nobody can believe in Jesus or come to Him unless the Father first draws that man. No one can trust in Jesus unless faith is given them by God in the first place. This, of course, makes sinners furious. It continues to make false teachers angry in the church today. Jesus acknowledged that His gospel teaching was losing Him support and followers. Yet Jesus was constant in His obedience to His Father's will, no matter what the people, how the people reacted. The contrast between Saul's wobble to satisfy his people and Christ's constancy is remarkable. Later, Jesus proclaimed his intention to be put to death by wicked men and rise again the third day. Peter blurted out what Christ's disciples were all thinking, Not so, Lord, this shall never be. As if to say, Jesus, you can't throw away the kingdom. You just can't. Peter didn't grasp Christ's urgent purpose of going to the cross to save his loved ones. Peter, like all the rest, was hoping for a physical, political Messiah to rescue Israel from its foreign barbarian occupiers. Israel had no use for a Messiah who came to save his people from their own sin. Peter and the rest were just like Israel in Saul's day, unwilling to trust in the mighty power of God to save them. Apparently, Jesus wasn't going to play along with their plans to use Him to institutionalize their carnal desires. In the end, had Jesus acceded to their wishes, all of His people would have been eternally doomed and lost. This would have been far more disastrous than what in the end befell Saul. In the end, he lost his people, his kingdom, and his life because he would not stop disobeying God's commandments. Indeed, the Lord suffered the loss of his people when they forsook him and fled from Gethsemane, when wicked men came to seize Jesus. But in fact, Christ made it clear that unlike Saul, he was happy to lose his people that night. That's because Jesus ultimately was determined to lose none of his people. Saul had been afraid there wouldn't be enough of his people to win the victory. But Christ knew that there were too many there to win the victory. Saul forgot that God can save with few people, but Jesus knew, as only he could know, 
that in the end God would save His people by only one man. Therefore Christ's disciples all fled that night, so that Christ's promise might be kept. This is the Father's will that of all He hath given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up in the last day. Only by going alone to Calvary and suffering and dying for His people's sin could our Lord Jesus win that great victory to save us from judgment, wrath, and hell. The Lord Jesus didn't need His people in order to save them like Saul thought He did. Our Savior fought the fight to save us alone. He knew He could rely upon wicked men in their hatred and rebellion against God to act out their evil role in sacrificing Him on the cross. Our King is victorious for us already. And we don't contribute anything at all to His great victory over and for us. But in this study this morning, we see that Saul descends into rash, ill-considered acts that lead his people into sin and then into a full-blown paranoia and peculiar obsession with his own personal insults. And you know the story of Jonathan and his armor-bearer in 1 Samuel 14. After the incident where Saul had violated the commandment by making his own sacrifices and not waiting for Samuel, Jonathan and his armor-bearer alone went up and took a garrison of the Philistines. And at 1 Samuel 14 at verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man that bore his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart. Turn thee, behold, I am with thee according to thy heart. Oh, that we would have such an attitude towards the Lord Jesus that our hearts would be knit with His heart in His mighty deeds, in His solitary act at Calvary, and that our hearts would rejoice with whatever it is the Lord Jesus determines to do. But unfortunately, Saul was not at one with his son or with the Lord in any of this. But the Lord blessed Jonathan and he was able to begin a great victory over the whole hosts of the Philistines. At verse 14 we read, And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men within, as it were, an half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the Philistine host, in the field and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers. Those spoilers were marauding parties of the Philistines that went out to destroy the people of Israel. They also trembled and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchman of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold the multitude that is, of the enemy, melted away, and they went on beating down one another. See, this is an example where the Lord confused the enemy and they turned their swords against each other. So great was the panic. Now, when Saul got wind of all this, he thought to ask the Lord, 
what he should do. But when he heard the sound of the Philistines' tumult, he decided to dispense with that and just go ahead anyway and follow after them and fight. At verse 18 of the same chapter, Saul said unto Ahiah, Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass while Saul talked unto the priest that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went up and increased. And Saul said unto the priest, Withdraw thine hand. The commentaries and the Jewish ancients explain this means that while Saul began to make an inquiry of the Lord, he soon disposed of that necessity and just went on and charged after the Philistines because evidently there was a great rout already underway and uh, he felt it was appropriate to chase after them. So Saul and the people roared off after the enemy. At verse 20, all the people that were with him assembled themselves and they came to the battle and behold, every man's sword was against his fellow. That's what they discovered. And there was a very great discomfiture. So it was even such a rout that the people who had fled and hid, they heard the noise and they came and joined back in with their brethren under the leadership of Saul. And so what was the conclusion? Verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. You see, it all started with the faithfulness and trust that Jonathan had and his armor bearer that the Lord could use one or two people to bring victory if He had a mind to. They had a real understanding and insight into how God works His ways and how His arm is not shortened that it cannot save. But Saul had to spoil this great victory with his rash and foolish commandment that he made. We read that in verse 24. The men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had adjured the people, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food until evening, that I may be avenged of mine enemies. And so none of the people tasted any food. That meant that they were now weak, could barely move. You you imagine some of us go a day without eating and we're faint and you haven't even hardly done anything. These people are out running and chasing and fighting and pursuing. But Saul had put a curse on anybody that ate anything before the sun set. So this was a cause of trouble and of weakness for his people. But the Scriptures tell us that they entered into a an area of trees, a stand of trees, the woods, it says. And there was a lot of honey on the ground. The honey was so heavy in the honeycombs and so forth that it it actually began to drop to the ground. Here was this high-calorie carbohydrate honey which would be of great use to these people to regain their strength to pursue the enemy but they weren't allowed to eat because Saul had put this curse on them. This foolish, rash decision that he made, which was hampering the effectiveness of his army. But now Jonathan hadn't heard his father's curse, so he saw the honey and he partook of it. And we see in verse 27 that Jonathan was then confronted with the king's 
commandment and he immediately realized how foolish it was. Verse 27. But Jonathan heard not when his father charged the people with the oath, wherefore he put forth the end of the rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb, put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes were enlightened. Then answered one of the people and said, Thy father straightly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man that eateth any food this day. And the people were faint. Then said Jonathan, My father hath troubled the land. See, I pray you, how mine eyes have been enlightened, because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if haply the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found, for had there not been now a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? So you see that Jonathan was more wise than his father. He was not a rash man. He was not given to making these personal demands, issuing these personal commandments that were foolish counterproductive. Predictably, the army was faint from fighting all day with no food. And at verse 31, we read, they smote the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. And so now we see where Saul's rash commandment and foolishness leads the people into sin. And the people flew upon the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slew them on the ground and the people did eat them with the blood. Now anyone who's read the Scriptures very much knows that all the way from the time of Noah, God had commanded that people might eat animals, but they might not eat the animals with their blood. They're to drain the blood away because the life of the flesh is in the blood. You remember that before the flood... Mankind was prohibited from eating meat or killing animals for food. After the flood, the Lord gave a dispensation that man might now kill and eat animals, but not with the blood. It had to be drained away because of the life of the flesh is in the blood. A symbol, a pointing to what the Lord Jesus would do for us as God's Lamb. You remember that the result of that was that the fear of man and the dread of man would descend upon the animals now that they were prey to man's desire for meat. So these people, because they had been starved all day by Saul's foolish commandment, now that it was nightfall, they took these animals and slew them. and They didn't have the proper facilities to drain the blood. And so they ate the meat with the blood, and that was sin, and they all knew it was sin. Even Saul knew it was sin. Saul took note of their sin, and he tried to stop them from continuing by bringing a big stone over for them to do their animal slaughters on the stone so that they could allow the blood to drain out over the edge, over the sides of the stone, and prepare the meat in a proper legal way. But he seemed oblivious to his own part in the causing of this sin. Look at verse 33. Then they told Saul, saying, Behold, the people sin against the Lord, in that they eat with the blood. And he said, Ye have transgressed. Roll a great stone unto me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people, and say unto them, Bring me hither every man his ox, and every man his sheep, and slay them here, and eat, and sin not against the Lord in eating with the blood. And all the people brought every man his ox with him that night 
and slew them there. Note again the king's foolishness and rashness provoked his people to sin. This resonance between the people's wrongdoing and the king's foolishness and wrongdoing is reestablished as Samuel warned the people and their king were in a toxic embrace of one another. And rather than their king bringing victory and justice and righteousness and peace, what happened was the people and the king swung back and forth in provoking one another unto wickedness, which would bring the judgment of God sooner or later. And so when Saul decides maybe they should pursue the Philistines into the night, the priests suggest that they consult the Lord, but the Lord will not answer. The Lord will not answer Saul's request. Now recall that beforehand, Saul decided not to consult with God. He's going to make his own decision, which there is no requirement that he should consult with the Lord. But now he won't wait on God to answer him. He's so hot to pursue the Philistines into the darkness. And so Saul concludes that the reason the Lord won't answer his question about whether he should pursue the Philistines that night, it must be some sin in the camp that's caused the Lord not to want to answer his request. Now, can anybody imagine what the sin might be? They all knew what the sin was. It was that they had eaten the flesh with the blood. That was a black letter evil. And it was almost next to idolatry for the people to be disobeying this law. And it wasn't just some made-up commandment. It, it went back centuries in their culture and in their nation that they weren't supposed to eat the blood. It was a commandment given to the great patriarch, Noah. We begin to see at this point this paranoid streak arise in Saul. Rather than stand by and wait for the Lord or pursue and take his chances or just send everybody home, what does he do? He wastes a bunch of time conducting his inquisition to find out why it was the Lord wouldn't answer his question. It descends into silliness. It reminds us of that famous movie, The Cane Mutiny, where Captain Quig, who is paranoid, institutes a big investigation to figure out who it was that took the strawberries, if you remember. And he told the court-martial as a witness that he would have found that extra key he proved it by mathematical logic that <laughs> there was an extra key. And you remember how paranoid he showed himself to be and how disgusted and sad the court-martial was to see that here this captain of a boat had descended into pursuits of such trivial things and was controlled by suppositions for which there was no real proof and so in 1 Samuel 14 at verse 37, we read this. He called all the people together, all the chief of the people, so that he could know and see wherein this sin hath been this day. And then he makes another rash promise. For as the Lord liveth, which saveth Israel, 
Though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people that answered him. Rather than back down from his foolish command that he had given in the first place, he doubles down and makes an even worse oath, a rasher oath, to put to death whoever it is that's committed this grievous sin, whatever it might be. And again, he just observed all the people committing black letter sin against God's commandment and eating the flesh with the blood because they were famished, because he had forbidden them to eat all day long. The obvious sin, he wasn't interested in pursuing that, was he? In other words, the sin that he already had demonstrated proof of was not his concern. You know, his rash oath about putting the malefactor to death should have reminded him of that rash oath that Jephthah made. Do you remember? He told the Lord, if you'll give us victory on the battlefield, I will offer up as a sacrifice the first thing that greets me out the door of my home when I get back. And the first person to come running out to meet him was his daughter. His only daughter. You would think that would be like in the handbook or the manual of Israeli leadership. Stop invoking the name of God and making foolish and rash oaths before God. Just stop doing that. You know, there was a commandment against taking the Lord's name in vain. A lot of these rulers seem to have had this peculiar defect that they would promise these blood oaths to God to do this or to do that or to kill this or to kill that or to punish this or to punish that. It must have been some sort of demonstration of their power, their command, their rule. But he was oblivious to the eating of blood, which was plenty of reason, but God might not be answering. And that was Saul's fault for provoking the people to sin in the first place. But instead, Saul focuses not on him and his people's sin against God, which was well known, but rather on some slight of his own foolish commandment. See, in the end, he took his commandment for them not to eat anything that day more seriously than God's commandment that they should not eat the flesh with the blood. He took it more seriously. It was a more personal affront to him. And so it comes down to this at verse 43. Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what thou hast done. And Jonathan told him and said, I did but taste a little honey with the end of the rod that was in mine hand, and lo, I must die. And Saul answered, God do so and more also, for thou shalt surely die, Jonathan. He did it again. He did it again. How fixated he was with his own little petty, rash commandment that all of this trouble and evil should flow from his foolish decision that he should hold against his own son a breach of a commandment that he made that his own son didn't even know about. Didn't know about when he ate that honey. But then the people put a stop to Saul's foolishness at verse 45. The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who hath brought this great salvation in Israel? God forbid, as the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he hath wrought with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan that he died not. You see, the people showed the king they could make oaths before God just as good as he could. And there were more of them than there was of the king. 
And if he really wanted to lose his people in the snap of a finger, let him reach out and touch Jonathan, who they recognized was the beginning of God's great victory for all the people. And so we see a loss of confidence in Saul's judgment and in his reasonableness and a complete loss of prudence. He went from being prudent and modest at the beginning of his reign to this unreasonable demand for personal loyalty. He became cranky, paranoid, and a vacillating king. The result of all this was that they didn't pursue the Philistines. In verse 46, when they had finished wasting all that time pursuing this paranoid feeling that the king had that he must uphold his authority while the Lord's law had been broken. And when we see this and we see the dissolution of this institution that the people thought would be their salvation, we once again consider how different is our Lord Jesus, our good King Jesus. You can't say that He was anything other than a prudent and gentle man, can you? You remember in Luke chapter 4, we've referred to this passage several times, that Jesus read that verse from Isaiah, Luke 4 verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. The Lord Jesus, the Scriptures tell us, the Spirit of God came upon Him. We're talking about, of course, Him in His humanity. Of course, the Lord Jesus is in His eternal deity, is God of very God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, three persons in one deity. But in His humanity, He was full of grace and truth. He was full of the Spirit of God. He was full of wisdom and knowledge and compassion. And we can be sure that He lays no unreasonable commandments upon His people. You remember what He said in Matthew 11 at verse 28, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Saul started out meek, but pretty soon the kingdom and the rule went to his head apparently. He lost his sense. He lost his humility, he lost his prudence, lost his good judgment, began to be consumed by paranoia and a peculiar preoccupation with the vindication of decisions that he made that were foolish on their face. Not so the Lord Jesus. Not so the Lord Jesus. No, the Lord Jesus has no personality disorders or paranoia. And He is not stupid in the conduct of His business. And how many times we might think of the rulers that we've had now and in the recent past who have obvious personality disorders that disorder 
what they do, the decisions they make, the way they behave, the way they talk. But the Lord Jesus is not that way at all. He is our good King Jesus. He doesn't have any cruelty against His own people like Saul did against his own son. You remember in Isaiah 42, the Scriptures said of the Lord Jesus, foretold this particular gentleness that Christ would have. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause His voice to be heard in the street. Why is this? Because He's chosen by God, God delights in Him, and He's put His Spirit upon Him, it said in verse 1. A bruised reed shall he not break. A smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth justice unto truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. If only our rulers could be as gracious, as kind, as courageous, as full of the Spirit of God as the Lord Jesus is. But then, if that were the case, we might think we didn't have a need for Jesus. Notice well how compassionate the Lord Jesus is for His people's physical needs. And here is a strange thing. The Creator of all the world, God manifest in the flesh, the King of glory, and yet He takes notice of the purely physical wants of the people whom He is leading as our shepherd. We read Mark 6, the story of Him feeding the 5,000. But Mark 8 makes it even clearer. In those days, the multitude being very great, having nothing to eat, Jesus called His disciples unto Him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now been with Me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from afar. This is the way that a good leader, a good teacher, a kind and considerate one, will attend to the needs of his people, whom he is trying to lead, whom he is trying to teach. He will not be oblivious to it. They will not be cruel to it. They will not leave them to fend for themselves. And so He commands the disciples to take a small amount of bread and fish that they have and He breaks it and gives it to them. And He feeds them. And verse 8, So they did eat and were filled and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets and they that had eaten were about 4,000 and He sent them away. The Lord Jesus was careful to heal the people, to teach the people, to proclaim the gospel of salvation to the people. But the job wasn't finished for Jesus until He could dismiss the people and send them home and He knew they would be able to reach home safely and not to faint by the way because because they did not have provision physically for the food that they needed. But all this had been foretold in Isaiah chapter 40 where we read, O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and His arm shall rule for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He shall feed His flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with His arm, and carry them in His bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. You see the contrast between the way the Lord Jesus deals with His people whom He loves and the way Saul dealt with his people whom he did not love nearly so much as he loved himself and was concerned in a paranoid way with his own honor. Instead of feeding the flock, you see, he flogged the flock. That's what, that's what Saul did. He flogged his flock. Saul had no feeling for the duty he had toward his people to have compassion on them to treat them with fairness and reasonableness and not be preoccupied with his own paranoia and what is to come with Jesus for us. We read this morning that precious text in Revelation chapter 7 where the people whom the Lord loves in His presence they shall be before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple, and he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them into living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. This is the plan which has been announced beforehand of what our Lord Jesus, God's Lamb, who is the King of glory, will do for His people. Finally, Saul had to be restrained, didn't he, from harming Jonathan, his son. He had to be restrained from killing his own son for a trivial and unintentional slight. See how unreasonable he was. And the people had to take action to put a stop to it. They could all see now that their king was mentally disturbed. And he could go so far, but they wouldn't let him go that far. But the Lord Jesus never has to be restrained for mistreating His people, does He? Never has to be. You remember how the Lord Jesus defends us and rescues us by His dying for us. I thought of that text in Micah chapter 7, Who's God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He retaineth not His anger forever because He delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Saul had no compassion for the sin of his people, even his own son. He didn't have any mercy, did he? He didn't delight in mercy. He delighted in what he perceived as swift and brutal justice. He didn't cast Jonathan's sin behind him. He didn't forgive him. He didn't think along those terms, did he? What he thought about was maintaining his authority in the face of this trivial disagreement 
No one ever has to stop Jesus from anything rash or foolish. And no one need ever restrain Jesus or question His judgment or sanity or reasonableness. And here we come to an interesting point that there is a blasphemy about the world, about the Lord Jesus, and that is this. That no matter how much He has suffered for the sins of His people, no matter how much He has protested His love for His people, no matter how gracious He is, compassionate, meek, and lowly of heart, no matter how much the Scriptures tell us that He is a faithful and compassionate high priest because He has endured and knows firsthand in His own body what it is to be a person who's beset with all sorts of troubles and so He can have compassion on His people whom He ministers to. There is this idea going around, especially in the Roman Catholic false church, that Jesus really, you know, He's a very angry person and that we need somebody to intercede with Him to calm Him down. And there candidate for that is, well, we have the saints in heaven. We can get them to pray to Jesus for us, that Jesus will have mercy on us. And if that doesn't work, why the sure fire method is to get Mary on our side because he can't deny anything she asks for. He's just such a pushover. And so we need to get Mary to pray for us, to intercede for us so that she can talk the men in the family down off their ledge from being so cruel and judgmental. And that's what they teach. Of course, it's other blasphemy. We don't need anybody to intercede for us to calm Jesus down, do we? He does all things well. He is the compassionate Redeemer for His people. He is the one who does not act out of rashness or foolishness or paranoia. But He does all things right all things proper. And He has redeemed His people, hasn't He? You notice around this table, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus feeds His people with His very body and His very blood. How does He do that? By dying for us. By laying down His life for His people. By shedding His blood for the forgiveness of our sin. All of our life and hope and joy are wrapped up in the sacrifice of the literal body and blood of Christ. And at this table, He feeds us with these symbols to remind us. You see, He does not leave His people to die the death, but rather He laid down His life. And now we partake of it. We who've trusted in Him, we partake of it as spiritual food and drink. And it nourishes us and it sustains us The Scriptures teach us that we feed upon Christ at the Lord's table. And we do so in celebration of the sacrifice He made to save His people. Saul wouldn't sacrifice a single inch of his pride and hubris and authority and right to be stupid and make foolish and rash decisions. But the Lord Jesus laid down His life for His people And so we can truly say that He is our good King Jesus. He is the one who saves us. He is the only one who can do us any good in the end. Praise God. Let's give thanks for the Lord's table. First for the bread that pictures 
his body that was broken for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice around this table that we do not have a king in your son who's capricious or foolish or rash or mentally broken or cruel, but we have the compassionate, loving Lord Jesus who even though He has all authority and power and even though we must bow the knee before Him and worship Him and be obedient and subject to Him, nevertheless is compassionate on His people in our weakness, in our frailty, and most importantly, compassionate upon us in our sin and disobedience. And He went to the cross and He laid down His life for the sake of His people to save us from our sin. And we thank You that He left us this feast to celebrate Him by, this bread that pictures the body that was broken, torn, and mutilated on our behalf and for our benefit. We thank You for our lovely Lord Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make remission of our sin. And after they had supped, the Lord Jesus took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 115 in the black book on the Lamb our souls are resting. Sweetest rest and peace have filled us. Sweeter praise than tongue can tell. God is satisfied with Jesus. We are satisfied as well. Number 115.